would um, like to ask for your attention for some some more mapping and reflecting on how these satipatthanas hang together in particularly um, some of their roles and the connection between body and the rest which uh, I was intrigued by one of the questions last night. It is indeed not obvious, is it, why I should pay attention to things that work beautifully without me paying attention to them. Why should I attend to breathing or or to sensate tone or to... things my automatic nervous system takes care of, like digestive movements or things my um, neurological wiring is is usually working, things like interception and proprioception. Why should I pay conscious and voluntary attention to these things? Why are contemplative traditions so doggedly insistent that this is needed. Yeah. And they are, you know, across the board. Uh, can even change religions there. But, you know, the Indian tradition particularly is very uh, emphatic on the power uh, our conscious relationship to bodily processes has and how healing this is, both in terms of our own self-awareness, but also in terms of bringing, injecting realism in our relationship to to bodily experience. And in some way, one could argue that, you know, Buddhist teaching particularly is about not being the body. It's about the identification from the body. It's about understanding the body as a, as a sort of functional, component of life, preferably of the life of the mind. Um, Much could be said in favor of that, and yet it's obvious to me, um, and I hope I've tried to clarify some of this in the last week, that we are not so straightforward in our relationship to embodiment. We are not so straightforward. There are a number of things happening. One of them is that we are bored easily with body. If it doesn't experience pleasure or pain, we're easily bored with it. Another dimension is that we use thinking to not feel. This isn't just some kind of um, new agey theory. You know, our first defensive reflex is dissociative. In other words, I reduce what I feel by preferably holding my breath and pulling my energy in and pulling it up. Little children do that. Nature has organized that so that I can, at a time when I'm totally vulnerable and have very little control over my environment, um, I have access 
as in fact it's the first of my defensive responses is I have access to just reducing the intensity in which I feel because I can't move away and I can't fight and I'm tiny and totally sensitive um, I can hold my breath and go somewhere else with my intention I can move away in other words although I'm here and completely vulnerable I can move away with my mind and we do that you know kind of <gasps> holding the breath is a very early example of this later on we do that a little more elegantly we think if we want to reduce the intensity of something we feel we think about it yeah. we derive some power we move away we pull the energy in we pull it up and we begin to construe and inhabit cognitive worlds and it's hard to say but I have a suspicion that we do that more than people were doing that 2000 years ago the speed has increased the impingement has increased and the enthusiasm for the world of thought and the world of abstraction has increased the necessity to handle the complexity of this has increased you know I love thinking um, if you listen to me you will know that I enjoy the power of ideas um, I've spent much of my adult life in a, in a contemplative tradition that prides itself to be anti-intellectual and I've always upheld the flag of you know there is more to mind than just a meditation obstacle, you know. You can actually do things with things. It's quite interesting to do things with your mind, you know. Thought is not less real than feeling, if you understand thought as thought, you know. And it is powerful, and so forth. So, if I'm to name a number of reasons why I believe that contemplative traditions have uh, insisted on um, putting our contemplative and the awareness skills to task with bodily experience. Um, the first one would probably be that we are profoundly identified with this body even though we may not admit so. I think I have complained and I believe Particularly Western philosophy has had sadly little to say about body in the history of philosophy. Um, it has changed a little bit in the last century, but on the whole, I, I find it quite disappointing to see how little uh, uh, Greek and uh, the whole story of Western philosophy has actually given attention to body and how preoccupied this um, philosophical pursuit is with the, the life of the mind and the life of ideas and the perspective and degrees of realities and such like. So I think we are, despite our declared fascination with all things mind, profoundly attached to the body. We deeply sense that we inhabit this body. We deeply... Um, appropriate, we are preoccupied with its function, with its performance, with its appearance, um, way beyond our immediate states of well-being. 
You know, we are concerned what other people think of our bodies. Um, just yesterday, I fished out an article of, the, and forty-four uh, percent of people interviewed by the scientists believe that some parts of their bodies or their entire bodies are in some way misshapen or ugly. You know, as a sort of belief. This is quite a staggering figure, isn't it? For the fact that yeah, most people you see have a head, and two arms and two legs. There may be an exception or so, you may. But on the whole, and yet the, that conviction is held by almost half of the population that some intrinsic part of their appearance is fundamentally and unacceptably misshapen or ugly which is a weird kind of notion. And it just tells you on a little, completely anecdotal uh, way how deeply we are identified with body, how deeply we are preoccupied with it. In terms of the Buddhist teaching, the Buddha thinks and speaks quite clearly that the, uh, the upadana, the grasping at, the attachment and the identification with Bodily appearance is powerful. It's one of our most powerful bondages. We also love our ideas and we're prepared to defend them bitterly. Uh, and, uh, but probably more deeply attached to our ideas, we are to body. There is something very primeval about our wish to survive and our wish to uh, function and I wish to uh, experience the world with its embodied sensory apparatus. So in terms of Satipatthana, what does that mean? It means the first of the Satipatthanas has as its primary task the stilling of restlessness, the stilling of emotion and the stilling of bodily movement. So, Kayanupasana brings a stilling of emotion and bodily activity. That's a clear statement. Pacification. Pacification is probably one of the major tasks of Kayanupasana in terms of Samatha in terms of developing stillness. Gathering, learning to hold and consciously, yeah, rather than being driven by the impulses of the body, its habits, its needs, its, its foibles, we are willing to hold that body in its bodiness yeah, and kind of reconcile with this. An aspect of body meditation uh, in terms of Satipatthana is also the mindfulness of breathing as a body function. And that has a particular task of stilling the mind. There's a particular task of stilling more precisely the thinking process. That is already explicitly stated so in the old Pali texts that the effectiveness of 
breathing, an attention directed to sensations of breathing uh, brings about a stilling of mind. And I occasionally read some research, uh, particularly about mindfulness, which is uh, it's a painful process, to be honest with you. As a Buddhist contemplative, uh, I, I find the enthusiasm in that world fantastic. I love it. I engage with it. I, wherever I meet mindfulness folk, I, I am surprised uh, at the curiosity, at the creativeness, at the enthusiasm uh, I meet. And I'm also dismayed by uh, the attempts to basically uh, kill mindfulness by defining it in ways that make it operationizable and testable. And uh, I understand that much of that testing is a testing for something that I would not consider to be mindfulness, but maybe, as one of my friends says, the uh, mindfulness industries attempt to define mindfulness in such a way that it can be easily tested, turns out to be something like the near enemy of mindfulness. So I look into this and I find, uh, I take heart in some aspects of it and find fascinating support in, um, for example, the, uh, the, the study that, uh, studies that show that if you pay your attention to actually somatic processes, then the relaxation effect of your exercise is a lot bigger than you pay, ac- than, in, than when you um, do not pay attention to a somatic process, but if you pay attention to mental constructs, yeah, say images or um, sound, yeah, a mantra, for example. So the soothing, the relaxing, the deeply, uh, the deep release that can come through mindfulness practice, as we all uh, can experience in our own practice, is Uh, to great extent due to our willingness to address with our attention and to hold and to return with our attention to somatic process. It is what you feel, not what you observe, that makes you more calm. That has the profound transformative and deepening effect, relaxation, whether you feel that subjectively or whether they measure your nocturnal cortisol releases Um, as a standard indication for the degrees of stress you experience. Um, It's the connection to the feeling part, the felt, not the emotional, but the felt sensation that has the relaxing effect. So what would then be the task of Vedanupassana if the task of Kayanupassana is stilling, calming, pacifying? task of Vedanupassana would be the... (coughs) the arresting of that ever uh, occurring seeking of pleasure, gratification, and seeking to avoid uncomfortable, displeasurable things. So the task of Vedanupasana is learning to hold a mind that does not, that is capable of experiencing something pleasant and something unpleasant without reaching for either of them reaching after the pleasant and defending against the unpleasant. 
So the task of Vedanupassana in some way is learning to hold attention irrespective of what involuntary attention would usually go after or move away from. This is why it's so important to understand the theory there and that's why it's so radical to deliberately give your attention to something that does not promise gratification and that does not promise you from protection against unpleasant things. Let's say just be still, be with your breath. You have no guarantee for gratification. You have no guarantee that your sensitivity is decreased. You have no guarantee that you're in better control of your life. That somebody sneezes beside you, that it affects you less. All you have is more space, but you don't feel it less. We all know that we don't become more unfeeling through meditation. The question is not, how good can I control my mind, or how good can I control my reactivity, or how good can I control my world around me? The question is, you know, how much can you take? The task of Chittanupasana, slight shift of emphasis, is concerned with purifying. It's concerned with deepening, cultivating things that are there much in our minds is already there. We are just very focused on generally negative things. We have a, a habit of making more of the deficit than of the thing that is already given or offered or granted. So in terms of chitta upasana, we're learning to strengthen and develop wholesome aspects of mind, stillness, empathy, um, dexterity, um, inquiry, um, s- obviously all degrees of uh, sampajanya, yeah, that kind of that wisdom in action, the contextualization, understanding things more deeply. Um, and we're doing the opposite of all this. In other words, we're trying to reduce unwholesome forces. We're not consenting to impulses that occur on the basis of greed or on the basis of aversion, on the basis of confusion. We try not to follow through on those impulses and stabilize the mind. We refine the mind, we purify the mind, we ethicize the mind. Uh, We seek to deepen the wholesome stuff that's already in there, our capacity to be compassionate or to experience joy or to savor stillness or to be equanimous even though things are not perfect. We also understand a lot about the mechanics of mind and its dynamics. We understand a lot about our patterning. Much of Chitta Nupasana is personal. Yeah. It, has, it brings us in touch with um, the specificity of our particular upbringing or the specificity of our lives, how things have happened and panned out in our life. There's a degree of situational content in Chitta Nupasana because it's this Chitta we're understanding and we're understanding this Chitta's pattern. 
The tradition argues, you know, in the West here it's common to speak of such understanding as a type of insight. You know, we have insight in my patterns. The traditionalists would argue that this is not actually vipassana. Vipassana is only of very simple sort, namely, I understand impermanence, I understand conditionality, I understand impersonality. As long as you're understanding your personal patterns, you're still not having vipassana. That would be a, a very sort of traditionalist point of argument. I think it's a mood point. You know, there is a dimension in our lives that is completely universal. And much of contemplative life uh, teaches us that we need to leave the horizontal where a life unfolds in a short lifetime lat- with lateral correlations. And we need to get out of that story and acknowledge a vertical, which tries not to get a perspective on the content of the story, but which tries to get a perspective on the apparent experiential subject. It gets a perspective on the experiencer, rather the experiencer's story. So much of our contemplative practice seems to be about trying to get out of this story into a perspective on the person who experiences this story. Now, this is a major shift. This is not easy. Because we're preoccupied with that story. Our whole Occidental thinking is preoccupied with the autonomous self. You know, that's on our shrines. Self-recognizing, self-determined, self-realized, autonomous subject. That's the God we're praying to. If you look at our philosophy, at our history, uh, psychology, this is what really is there on the shrine. Now, the East, or particularly India, and the Buddhists foremost, they uh, have a very different perspective on this. They say, look, the important bit is not your story. The important bit is you get a perspective on where the story happens or or the protagonist of that, how you construe that protagonist rather than the adventures of the protagonist. Uh, We're going to focus our awareness on the protagonist itself, how this protagonist construes his world, how this protagonist construes himself. Because there you can really change something. The truth is both is true. You know, we're we're in that story and we have we are called not just to understand the world from some uh, fence sitting position, we're we're also in this quite powerfully. We are not just called to understand, we're also called to live, to meet to engage, to manifest, to connect. So we need to oscillate between this horizontal of, our, of my unfolding life yeah, in, in linear time and a vertical that is timeless, that says, look, there are things that are true outside of your little story. What, what is your relationship to these things? Things change. Things don't have an inherent essence. You don't belong to yourself. Yeah. What you make up as being a protagonist of your experience is a construct. It's fiction. And yet it feels very real, isn't it? So we have to move back and forth between what's the reality, what is my understanding and relationship to the big stuff, yeah. impermanence and impersonality, and the possibility for freedom, a human mind capable of awakening. 
And then I live here with very specific people in a very specific place, with specific relationship with teachers and friends and responsibilities. And I need to somehow bring this together. So Chitta Nupassana is where this meets. The universal, in a very profound way, meets. So some of the questions I'm asked in Chitta Nupassana have to do with deepening the capacity of the mind to hold the big picture. If I'm always worried about how to pay my taxes and where, where, where I can get my next uh, um, big adventure, uh, it is unlikely that I will come to terms to, with mortality or with responsibility or with emptiness or with interconnectedness. Or, that needs some space, and that space comes through a deepening in the mind. And this deepening generally is identified with samadhi, stillness. A task of Dhammanupasana would be something like <coughs> identifying particular patterns helpful for awakening, you know, classic uh, the awakening factors. Particular patterns that are detrimental to awakening. Um, obviously the nivaranas, the hindrances. Um, I said the term dharma, and this is maybe important to note, has various meanings. It's, it's a complicated term. There's a German couple, Indologist from the 30s, last century. They wrote a book and they identified uh, about 40 different meanings of the term dharma, or dhamma. And... Um, backed it up with a lot of research and texts to uh, exemplify the differing usages. In the Satipatthana, the term Dharma with a long A, in other words, with plural, um, means two specific things. One of them is, it means something akin to phenomena. So everything that turns up in your experience is a Dharma. And if you investigate Dharmas, as we are encouraged to in the awakening factor of Dhamma Vijaya, then you investigate phenomena, you investigate things. These things may be states, they may be objects, they may be uh, big or small things, they may be inside or outside. All these would be phenomena. So that's definitely one meaning of the term. The other meaning of the term is hard to translate. It refers to a, cate a taxonomy, a particular taxonomy under which Buddhist teaching groups world, you know, the experience of world. You know. So these categories would be the khandhas, the aspects of experience, the ayatanas, the sense spheres, the four truths, you know, the biggest possible pattern in which we can relate to experience. Uh, they would be Mm. Yeah, I think those are the big ones. So categories which Buddhist teaching has produced to help us orient in a world and to help us contemplate the experience of this world. So what is the task of Dhammanupassana? That the task of Dhammanupassana is to 
identify these patterns clearly and deepen particular relationships in them. So one of them is what makes free? What leads to stillness? How does conditionality work? Uh, you see, some things you cannot understand in the here and now. Here and now is good, but it's difficult to recognize, say, conditionality here and now. To understand conditionality, you need to understand something about time. And if you're living only here and now, then the time in which conditionality unfolds is not necessarily apparent. You're confronted with an immediately appearing suchness. Which is great stuff, but some of that suchness is constructed. It has to do with what happened yesterday or what happened previous. It has to do with what you always do in similar situations. The problem with the notion of now as being a perfect place where I am safe is, um, well, it's not true. Now is a constructed experience. The idea that there is a kind of a past which goes down into the abyss and then and then there's a future coming out of the abyss which goes like this and now is kind of at the bottom here. It's very theoretical. It's a kind of, it's a mental construct and that now that is infinitely small but infinitely clean because it isn't contaminated with the past or with the future yet where things are truly possible. The idea of a Christian nunc stuns, yeah, an eternal now. Um, it's construed. You know. How big is now? If you're having a still mind, then now is a lot bigger in terms of t- temporal unit. You know. If you ask neurologists how big a now is, they tell you all kinds of things. One of them is that your mind is l- chunking, is parsing, sensory input in in something called one situation or a moment uh, when it's not too further too far apart maybe a second if you're a meditator and you train then that stretch will become bigger but that now still is construed it has something to do with your training it has something to do with your past it has something to do with your needs it has something to do with your perspective it has something to do with your availability with your comp- com- with your um, composure all this plays an immense role in your experience of the now so that now is never completely new or completely fresh or, or it's not without conditions but it's difficult to see the conditions in the now. So that's why we tend to establish conditions in a longer stretch. Yeah. So you water this plant, you plant it, and then you put earth in it, water, warmth, light, and then plant may grow. Yeah. Conditions for this plant are seed, earth, water, light. None of the conditions, not even the seed, can make the plant. You take one condition away, plant dies. Maybe you may fudge a little bit with the earth bit. You can cheat and put it in cellulose and take the earth away or do something like that. Grow it on fleece or so. I'm sure there's some Japanese factories who do that. <laughs> but you understand the relationship. Neither of these conditions produces the plant. And yet the plant depends on every single one of them. 
That's a very simple principle. But it's difficult to see that principle in the moment called now. By the way, in my image, the important bit is not the now at the bottom of the abyss. The important bit is the present moment. That's the little bridge up there here between past and future. So Chaitanya Upasana offers a practice that helps us cleanse the the optics of our understanding. It teaches us to still, to purify, and to transform wholesome stuff into even more wholesome stuff and unwholesome stuff into less potent, less virulent uh, forces in our mind. Chitan Upasana is where we experience suffering, where we experience happiness. Chitan Upasana is where we experience distraction and stillness, where we experience expansiveness and contraction. Um, there's much in there. Why we don't wade in there straight away? Because of its complexity. Because it's difficult when you enter a room to actually acknowledge the atmosphere of that room. What you first acknowledge is the things and the people in that room. Yeah. As I said last night, the, the habituation of our attentional pattern to grasp after markers. We have markers for our attention, things like intensity, suddenness, um, un, anything unforeseen. Uh, Certain things are stronger than others. Uh, sound generally tends to be stronger than, say, thought. Yeah, so if sound and thought are competing, sound tends to win. Yeah. Then, uh, then we have, so these are attentional markers. Whenever this happens, our attention goes there. Yeah? It jumps to that marker. One of such markers is form, shape, and shadow, color. So the, the term rupa, refers to that which stands against, which offers resistance in the field of vision, that is its original meaning. So the eye is particularly prone to this latching onto, grasping and hooking into. And if we want to understand things like chitta, we need to undo some of this habitual reifying of this habitual grasping at things, grasping at the most obvious, grasping at that which stands forth. We need to widen our gaze so that we somehow see the air around it, the space around it, the mood in which this occurs. That's why it's tricky to practice Chitta Nupasana straight away. So what can we do practically? One way to practice Chitta Nupasana is very simple. You go to the end of something and then you hover and look what a kind of climate is there. When the thing is gone, you have a better chance of getting an understanding, a feel of what is left, what quality of mind. You know, is this fertile? Is this young? Is this old? Is this welcoming? Is this clinical? Is this nice? We get increasingly a feel for a tone that is prevalent in our minds. 
that tone may shift. Sometimes it shifts dramatically. You know, we've all experienced that. Everybody's around, shares, shares gifts, makes, makes jokes, is warm-hearted, and then somebody says something off, you know, and, you know, the air in the room freezes, yeah? Everybody was fine, and then his manic cackle set in, and suddenly the whole place freezes over. You know, everybody goes into... Oh. So, citta sometimes, the trust is gone, hostility comes in, or mistrust comes in. Um, citta can very quickly change. And we can notice the changes. If we learn to de-identify with the objects that capture our attention, you habitually, we get a better feel for the quality, the climate, the atmosphere that surrounds these objects. So we go through the, the texture of a mood throughout our day, you know. Grumpy pre-breakfast mood and then uh, glucoid-induced happiness uh, and then, you know, a little restlessness two hours later and then uh, post Prandial depression, you know, the, the big sensory event of the day is over. Uh, now it's only downhill from now on, you know. No, again, no dessert today. You know, and then you kind of gradually pick up a little energy towards the evening um, and so forth. You know, you start, you start to get a feel for the cycles in your mind. Or you notice you sit down and something suddenly shifts. There was a pain and it was tight and you were you were in a way strict and disciplined and suddenly it softens and widens and although the pain is still there so it seems as if you have suddenly an immense amount of space and you're very tender with that pain and all this contraction is gone yeah and yet the pain is not gone but somehow you hold that pain in different ways that means something in your chitta has changed your experience of body, you know, all my insistence on you feeling body and sensation and feeling, feel the awareness for your body. And then you do that dutifully and suddenly you realize the more the mind goes still, <laughs> the more that body seems to lose shape and the more it becomes a less physical and an increasingly energetic experience. Yeah. That... I start off dutifully with a fist size spot in my belly, feeling, feeling, feeling. And then when I do that well, suddenly that breath seems to stop losing its physical locus. And it becomes kind of a, an energetic experience. Yeah. This is not because you're doing it wrong, it's just because you're doing it right. Yeah. By focusing on body sensations, something happens. They are not solid and they dissolve or they change, they alter, they, de they de demonstrate impermanence and insubstantiality. Yeah. So samadhi does that to some extent and changes your perspective on body, on pain, on posture, on structure, on solidity. There are three specific questions that help with citta nupassana. I would like you to note those. The first question is you 
you just throw, imagine these questions as if they are stones you're throwing into the pond, yeah? You throw them in and then you, you kind of listen or you look at the ripples. The first of this question is simply, what is, the, what is the mood now? What is the climate now? What is the atmosphere? What is the weather in there right now? For that, you will need to release the safety and the reassuring solidity of things that are foremost in your mind, thoughts, maybe even sensations. You need, will need to release that so that you get a wider perspective, that your gaze widens, like we've tried yesterday morning, widening your gaze so wide that you sit in your own gaze. The second question is, you're asking yourself, the thought that has come up, or the image that has come up in your mind, where does this come from? Not analytically, but you're asking, what soil has this grown out of? Is this a soil of wish, a soil of desire, a soil of aversion? You're actually trying to find out you know, your little thought sh sailboats that kind of go across the inner horizon. Yeah, that little, these little sailboats. You're not interested in the boats, you're interested in where does the wind blow from? Does it blow from a, a desire corner, or from a doubt corner, or from an aversion corner, or from a joy corner? Yeah? Are these, you're taking the pulse of these thoughts. Rather than talking with the thoughts, you're just looking at them and say, is this, what propels that? What's the fuel of that little thought? Yeah. Every little thought has a propellant. And that propellant is emotional. Is this curiosity? Is this aversion? Is this desire? Is this whatever? Yeah. You're trying to find the energy behind the thought. The third question, very much in the same vein, is you're asking, if I join the thought or the image that comes up right now, if I join it, if I give it my attention, if I give it my energy, where does it take me in a minute? Yeah. I assume it's similar for you as it is for me that Many of your thoughts are not actually completely new. Um, didn't want to insult you, but I would assume that it will not have escaped your attention that some of the stuff we think is actually pretty old stuff. It's rehashed, it's warmed up, and we know all too well where this goes. We know if I join this thought, if I join this train of thought now, you know, in, in a minute I'll be sad, despondent, angry, needy, longing, wanting, helpless, you know. We know that because we've seen that thought, we've joined that thought, we've given it our energy many times. Um, if I go about thinking in this way, where will it take me? Which cliff will it beach me on? Well, 
So just consider getting in touch, not with the thought, but with the energy behind the thought. Recognizing the soil out of which a particular type of thinking comes. Sometimes this is not straightforward, you know. Sometimes what my mind says, you know, says this is just constructive criticism, you know. I'm not angry, I'm not averse, this is not about dislike, you know. I'm just trying, it's about principles here, you know. <laughs> and then I listen a little more closely to the voice of the thought. You know. And when I listen to the voice a little closer, I hear that it's whinging, yeah. I hear that it's complaining. So I don't know how your thoughts appear. Some people seem to read their thoughts more. Uh, some people can hear them, you know. Be a bit careful when you speak to your psychotherapist about this. He may, <laughs> he may go nervous about <coughs> when you tell him that you're hearing your thoughts more clearly. Um, but, you know, we all hear things. And sometimes the voice of a thought is much more easily recognizable in its affective tone in its disappointment, in its gleefulness, in its longing, in its uh, despondency, um, in its complaintive, complaining nature. Yeah? Sometimes when we just listen to the sound rather than to the melody, yeah? we hear, we have a much clearer idea what we're actually dealing with. Would I believe this voice if I heard it in the radio? If somebody at the neighboring table would speak in that voice, would I believe this? You know, this is an angry voice, isn't it? There's something making angry pronouncements here. No, I'm not giving you my energy. Sorry, not boarding this train. Thank you, I'll take the next one. This one goes to Tristania. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna join here. So this, is a skill, obviously, and there is a risk in this. The risk is that we lose our stillness, the risk that we lose our safety. But we have now sat a number of days, and some of the stuff that is recurrent, and please spare yourself the investigation of stuff that is trivial or inane or just blab blattering, yeah? the blattering away of the mind. There will be things that are recurrent, that have a certain tenacity and a certain charge, and those will be things we cannot always put aside and treat them as meditational obstacles. There is a, a good reason that at some point we look at them and we bring up an investigative attitude and try to find out what makes me so preoccupied with this. Is this really what it is? Can I get in touch with not the message that is, it carries in front of itself, but can I get in touch with the energy that propels it? Try. We're going to deepen this a little. Yeah. Obviously, if you find uh, you've been carried away or what you have tried to heroically understand with your uh, Chitanupasana practice has roped you in, and uh, is riding you, then this is the moment to acknowledge that this is the case, and you humbly go back to a samatha object, and you learn to still your mind, go back to the breath, and park your investigation. 
If nothing comes up, beautiful, just continue. Anapanasati. Still the mind, deep in the mind. Make sure that you stabilize the calm. And there will be a moment when things will show themselves. So develop as joyous, blissful, unified. That is perfectly all right. Yeah, so don't, you don't have to do mock raking, okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.